You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Remember, you know, last week um, we were working through some events in the life of Paul. You guys remember that um, uh, he had gone up into Jerusalem after 14 years after he's called from an apostle, uh, called as an apostle, and he. He goes to meet with kind of secret council meeting with some of the other apostles. Peter's there, and he brings Titus with him, and Titus is an uncircumcised Greek, so he's a non-Jew, meaning that under like Jewish custom and law, not welcome in Jerusalem. And, and so, so Paul goes into Jerusalem, and he's got him with him, and it, and it triggers this conversation. It sparks a conversation right, between Peter, Paul, and the other church leaders in Jerusalem. Do I need to come under the law in order to be made right with God? Do I need to be circumcised and become a Jew before I can receive the Jewish Messiah? And we remember that in that passage last week that Paul concluded that even Titus, who was an uncircumcised Greek, was not required or forced to be circumcised. And so victory for the gospel toward the Gentiles, towards you and I, right? battery went out. And we see that, uh, we see that Paul uh, sees Peter again in Antioch, which is a Gentile church. And uh, so when Peter comes to Antioch, there I am, when Peter comes to Antioch, uh, he, um, uh, he's eating with the Gentiles. He's communing with them around a table, probably enjoying communion together is what we're reading about. And all of that's going fine until these people who are called the, the men of the circumcision party, certain men from James, we've been calling them the Judaizers, these, these men come around to Antioch and suddenly Peter withdraws from the Gentiles. He withdraws from them and so he had been eating with them, but he didn't want to be seen by the circumcision party eating with the Gentiles. And so this fear, we can all see you, man. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, and so this, uh, so what we see is, is that there's uh, what Paul called inconsistency or walking out of step with the truth of the gospel. And so there's this conflict that arises between Paul and Peter. And Paul confronts Peter in front of everybody. And he says, brother, this is not in keeping with the truth of the gospel. And again, the gospel wins out. And so in this way, I want you guys to see that like the, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, of finding your belonging and right standing with God by faith alone has been under attack since the moment that it dawned on the earth through the work of Jesus Christ, and it remains under attack today. Now, before we go into the, the implications and the application of this doctrine that we see Paul work us through here at the end of chapter 2, I kind of want to hold out to you guys just a question to carry in your heart as I preach. The question is, real basic, who are you? Who are you? And how do you go about answering that question, who are you? It's central to every man. We're all wondering it at some level, all trying to work out in some measure how we develop or, or secure or understand our identity. Who are we? Among all the species on the earth, I'm fairly confident only humans are asking this wondering in bed at night, who am I? What makes me me? How do you construct and secure an identity? 
And the reason why, in some ways, this is a confusing and kind of ever-changing conversation uh, among people is I think that we try to make sense of it in two different arenas. First, we kind of compile and we gather for ourselves different attributes and things about us that are derived, that are inherited, that, that we receive on no basis of, of work or performance. You're going to think about things like family of origin, nation of origin, the community that I grew up in, who my father is, who my mother is. We're going to look at some things that are intrinsic to us, maybe our race and our ethnicity, our native tongue. We're going to think about the story that, came, that, that we came from. If it's an honorable story with lots of victors, I happen to know that there's a Revolutionary War hero in my family line. And so we hold on to that, and we mention that. I'm, you know, I never knew the guy. I can't even say his name. But I come from that guy's line. And then there's other stuff that maybe we want to see buried, and so we don't talk about that so much, right? But your story is your story, and you build your identity based on the story that you come out of in some measure. And then there's the things that are not so intrinsic to you. There's the things that you can maybe add to your identity. These are the things that you do or don't do. The things that you have or don't have. The money in my account, the money that's not in my account. How many children I have, how many children I don't have. The good things that I've done, the good things I haven't done. Some of it may be more superficial. How big am I? How strong am I? How strong am I not? How healthy am I? How healthy am I not? How beautiful am I? How beautiful am I not? And we accumulate all of these different things, these attributes, some of it given to us by words, words of affirmation or words of criticism given to us by the world, some of it just based on our own intrinsic valuing the things that we hope to be and want to be, and we build these identities, and somehow we get around to answering the question, who am I? And if I sit any of you down in my office, and I sit you across the table, and I make eye contact with you, and I give you nowhere to go, and I ask you the question, who are you, and I don't help you at all, and I just sit there, and you've got to come up with an answer. In some way, you guys are all going to do, in some measure, what I just described. You're going to try to piece together an answer to this question. Well, who are you? Hold that question in your heart as we deal with the application of this doctrine of justification by faith. And I hope that you will see this morning the way that, that Paul understood this doctrine to be identity-forming. To be identity-forming. Beginning in verse 15 in chapter 2, Paul continues with a statement. He's talking about himself and Peter. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he opens in this, in this clause, in this section of his letter, by saying, we ourselves are Jews from birth. So, well, there's one of those intrinsic identities. Jews from birth, born into Judaism. We know about Paul, that he was born of the tribe of Benjamin, that he was raised a Pharisee, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he had done all the things, that he was blameless in keeping the law. He had all kinds of things on which he could pin 
his identity. And remember last week I talked about how he regarded them all as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He had things that he could have built his identity on. And here he's saying, we ourselves, me and you, Peter, we're Jews by birth. So one of the things that I could, cl- I could look to for my identity is my Judaism, the fact that I am a Jew. But also what he could cling to is what he is not. And we're not Gentile sinners. We were not born outside of Judaism. We were not born outside of the law. We were not born among those wicked people. Do you remember the scandal, how scandalous the Jews saw uh, Jesus for communing, for dining with sinners and tax collectors? A lot of times when we, we use that, when we think about that passage or we think about the, how, how ludicrous it was to the Jews that Jesus would commune with sinners, that we think that they just mean like people who sin, as if there's anybody who doesn't meet that criteria, but there's not. We know there's not. What they found ludicrous was that Jesus, the supposed Jewish Messiah, was communing with non-Jews, with sinners as a blanket statement, people who did not belong to and didn't even have the ability to come under the righteousness available in the law. The, the Samaritans and the foreigners. And then they add in the tax collectors because the tax collectors were generally Jews who defected, Jews who pledged their allegiance to Rome and were collecting taxes from their own countrymen on behalf of Caesar. The Jewish Messiah eating with sinners was what his identity was, was a Jew by birth, and what his new identity was, was justified one in Christ alone the same identity and the only identity that all men must cling to if they are going to have right standing with God. And what he was appealing to when he said that no man is justified by works of the law, he was not appealing to a new doctrine. He was not appealing to something that like he invented or something that comes onto the scene when Jesus arrives. This had always been the case. There was just increased clarity as we meet the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ, and he teaches about what we did not understand In Psalm 143, verse 1 to 2, the the psalmist David, he wrote, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. In the ancient days, under the Old Testament law, David penned this psalm, and he pled to the Lord for what? Mercy, for mercy, not acknowledge my righteousness, God, but saying no one living is righteous before you in your faithfulness, in your righteousness, have mercy on me. The appeal has always been to the Father's righteousness to be applied to us in order that what? What does he say in the psalm there? That he would not enter into judgment with his servant. See, justification ultimately has to do with our judgment. You say, well, what is justification? The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers that question like this. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons us of all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight 
only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Again, justification is an act of God's free grace, whereby he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. This is the doctrine that Paul is appealing to for his identity here. This is the doctrine that David was appealing to when he prayed. Let me not enter into your judgment, but instead, according to your righteousness, God, hear my pleas for mercy. Paul knew what Peter knew, that we cannot be made right with God by our adherence to the law. Your rule keeping is not going to be sufficient to make you right with God. Your religion is not going to make you right with God. Your obedience is not going to make you right with God. Your good works are not going to make you right with God. Even martyrdom would not be enough to make you right with God. It is by faith alone that we are made right with God. Now, Paul continues... If we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith alone, and we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to not be justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ alone, and if it's by works of the law that nobody will be justified, the next logical conclusion is going to be the conclusion that the Judaizers took. These men who were marching around to all the churches that Paul planted all throughout the area of Galatia, these men from the circumcision party, these Judaizers, they're going to rightly conclude this gospel, which says that we are justified by faith alone and not by works. Well, that sounds like lawlessness. And we, we can't have lawlessness. And so they're coming behind this gospel of grace, this gospel that is received apart from obedience to the law, and they're trying to keep the law of Moses back on top of it. And church, what I want you to hear this morning is that being freed from bondage to the righteousness that was available to you in the law, available but unattainable, is not the same thing as being given license to sin. It's just not the same thing, and we're going to get there more in a minute. But the Judaizers were concerned. This gospel of free grace is going to produce lawlessness, so we need to come behind and make sure that we're adding the law to this message of justification by faith. So Paul answers it, their concern. Verse 17, but if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For it is righteousness. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Listen, the new life in Christ is lawless in that 
the good that proceeds from you is no longer on account of an external observation to an external law. It's because the, new, the life of the Christian is a ransom life whereby you are walking in a new life given to you in Christ. This is the law of the Spirit. It's a whole new ballgame. I'm no longer trying to conform to something external to me, but everything has been changed in light of my new identity. And your new identity is not just something figurative, it's something literal. And this is what I want to talk to you about. You see, what Paul says, through the law, I died to the law, that's almost discombobulating, isn't it? Wouldn't you think, like, no, through the gospel, I died to the law. Through Jesus, I died to the law. Something like this, through the law, I died to the law. Well, maybe that doesn't compute, but don't you understand? What Paul is saying is the law killed me. The law killed me. It was through the law that I died. So that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The law brought the penalty of death. And this death was exacted upon Jesus at Calvary. And I have been united with Jesus in his death. And so death has also been exacted upon me. Through the law, I have died to the law. Because the law killed my Savior and I am wholly bound to thee. I am tied to him. He is tied to me. I am united with him. So it is no longer I who live. Because I died at Calvary with Jesus. But it is Christ who lives in me. Four things were nailed to that cross at Calvary. We see the God-man Jesus Christ nailed to that cross. We see a sign that read, Jesus of Nazareth king of the Jews. We see the debt of your sin, according to Galatia, or Colossians 2, chapter 8, or verse 8 through 14, and you yourself. Four things pinned to the cross. According to Colossians 2, verse 8 to 14, we read, see to it that nobody takes you, church, captive by philosophy and empty to see according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the, full de- the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and we have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him by putting off the body of flesh in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The record of your debt was nailed to the cross with your Savior, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and you were nailed there with him. So that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Martin Luther said that by faith you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person which cannot be separated. You will remain attached to him forever. And this doctrine of union with Christ explains why we understand as Christians that we are dead to the law. We're united to Christ in his crucifixion. As far as God is concerned, we, you, really are truly crucified with Christ. It's on that cross that the law carried out its death penalty against us. Your sin was deserving of wrath. Your sin is deserving of wrath. The judgment, the wages of sin are death. 
but your death was a historical event. Your punishment has been poured out. Your judgment over your sin has taken place. If you belong to Christ, it was on that cross. You're a dead man walking. As far as the law is concerned, you are now dead. There is now nothing that the law can do to improve your standing with God because the law has killed you. The reason why we can live for Christ is because we have died to the law. And we're not just dead to the law. It's almost as if we've stopped living altogether. When he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's almost like Paul is saying something like this. I no longer have a life of my own. The only life that I have is the life that I live that God has placed within me through Christ Jesus. There is no Paul. There is only Christ in Paul. And this is antithetical to the contemporary culture. There's a quote I pulled from actress Shirley MacLaine, big in the 60s, but still famous today. She said, the most pleasurable journey that you can take is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and you try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work and your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all of that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you ever really go to bed with is yourself. The only person you really ever dress is yourself. And the only thing that you have is working to the consummation of your own identity. I mean, do these words like not capture the spirit of the age? The spirit of the modern and postmodern age, self-esteem, self-improvement, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-righteousness, kind of whatever you want as long as it starts with self. And Paul says, there is no more Paul. I have died. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. It's a radical upturning of the way that we once lived, the spirit of the prince of the power of the age, which whispers to you, you can do it. You can do it. You can heap upon yourself enough good works to really present yourself as valuable before the Father. What a joke. What a measly offering to the creator of the universe. that you dropped a 20 in the baby bottle, that you, that you came to church on Sundays. You don't gain your righteousness on account of your good works. If you are in Christ, the good works that proceed from you are the evidence of the new life that has been placed within you. They don't make you something. You are something. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. Christ. Dr. Riken, he's the president of Wheaton Bible College here in Illinois. He said it like this way. In these self-absorbed times, the Bible announces the death of the self. It's no longer I who live. The world no longer revolves around me. I'm no longer dominated by thoughts of my own pleasure and prestige. If I have a life at all, it is only the life that Christ lives in me. This is the mystery of Christ's indwelling presence by the Holy Spirit. One thing it means is that becoming a Christian is the best and only way to discover our identity, 
We are not going to find our true, our true selves until we find ourselves in Christ. Our identity is established and secured by our union with him. We have no self except the self that we have in him. And to have a healthy self-image then is to see ourselves as we are in Christ. What Paul is talking about when he talks about dying to his old self and walking in a new nature and yet continuing to be found to be a sinner. This is important because ultimately what the Judaizers were concerned with is the same thing that you're concerned with. I'm supposed to be a new creation, and yet I keep on sinning. I'm found to be a sinner. I'm not observing the law. This is what Paul and Peter were doing intentionally. They came out from underneath the observances of the Jewish customs and traditions and laws. And so by leaving the, 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 the city center of Jerusalem and going out to Gentile nations and dining with these people and not observing and like breaking the cleanliness laws, the food laws, all this stuff, they were becoming lawbreakers. They were becoming like Gentile sinners. And he, so he said, if you look into our lives and you see that like we are no longer under the weight of, we're no longer keeping the law. We become like sinners. Do I nullify grace? Well, by no means. He started to think about his sin. He said it like this. It's a little bit of a longer reading, but stay with me. In Romans 7 and 8, Paul said, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So that it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I've got the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, that is my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul is confessing the sins of his hands. He's, he's talking about sin, not just like I'm not keeping the law anymore because I don't have to. He's talking about a sin now. I'm literally sinning. Well, but I thought I was a new creation. And what he says is the fact that I desire to do good and I cannot do it. Well, when I was in the flesh, I loved breaking the law. I broke the law and I called it good. I sinned and didn't see it as sin. I, I, was, I, was, I set my mind on the things of the flesh. I delighted in the things of the flesh. I didn't desire to, 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 to honor the Lord. I, I thought I was honoring the Lord even as I, like, I was by nature a child of wrath. I was under the power of the stupefying power of the prince of the power of the air. But the fact that now, when I sin, in my inner being, I look to that sin with grief. I look to that sin with a repentant heart. I look to that sin with anguish. For the fact that I even want, even know 
what is good and want to do it. This is a testimony of the new self within me. So that now when I sin, it's no longer I who do that. But it's sin in me. So disembodied from the old body of death, the one that he's saying, who will, who will save me, deliver me from this body of death? He calls it the body of death. That when, when I sin, well, that's the body of death. That's no longer I that does that. That's sin. Well, you know who he thinks of when he sees the old body of death doing body of death things? He sees Paul upon a cross. He, it's like a shadow of a dead man. The man on whom the full wrath and punishment of God has already fallen. He sees the vestiges of the self that is laid to death at Calvary. And he looks forward to a future glory where he will receive a new body that he doesn't have to drag with him in his spirit of righteousness, but that will comply with the new nature that was placed within him. See, verse 8 says this, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the things of the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, and it cannot, for those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. You, however, he says, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. But you see, there are two men in your story, two women in your story, one a dead man and one raised to eternal life. And your consciousness of the dead man serves to glorify Jesus as a testimony of what he did, what he changed, and what he has yet to do. And this is where the hope of future glory that I've been preaching to you weeks after weeks has been. And listen, this is, there are certain men that I have in my heart as I say this right now because I've been walking with you and I have seen your agony. And I pray that you will know if this is for you. But I have watched you warring with your sin. I have seen you staying up into the middle of the night, afraid to sleep. Because when I sleep, then time is going to go by like that. And then I'm going to wake up. And when I wake up, I'm going to sin tomorrow. I'm afraid I'm going to sin tomorrow. I just don't want to sin anymore. I keep doing what I don't want to do. And you're at war with your sin. And you are in agony over your sin. I want to say evidence of life, brother. Evidence of life, sister. You're doing what you don't want to do? Evidence of life. 
You're not doing what you do want to do. You delight in the law of God, in your inward being, and yet in your members, they still continue to carry out the law of sin, the law of sin, evidence of life. And your help is on the way. I want to tell you that you're going to see progress. Because the Jesus, the spirit of Christ that's in you is able to give you victory over that sin that clings so tightly. And I believe that he will, and I'm continuing to pray for you. But to the degree that you are believing that your progress in that sin area is how you are going to make yourself presentable to the Father on the day that you pass into glory, I say to you, rest. When you pass into glory, everything that was worthless will be burned up in a moment, and all that would be left is worth singing over. You are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit if the spirit of God dwells in you. Paul ended that passage like this. So we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if we live according to the flesh, we'll die. For by the spirit, you are, if we put to death by the deeds of the body, you'll live for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'm going to talk about identity. The spirit of adoption by which you have been made sons, by which you cry, Abba, Father. His spirit testifying with your spirit that you are, in fact, a child of God. What better identity is there than that? I tell you, there is none. Some of us are trying to become eligible to marry into the family of God. We're trying to clean up enough that the Father would allow us by our good works to join ourselves to him. That we can somehow marry in or work our way in. But the only way into the family of God is through adoption. And church, you don't adopt yourselves. And you don't keep yourself adopted. This is not an identity that you gain for yourself. It is an identity that is given to you by grace alone, received by faith alone, as you are united with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. I want to read you an epitaph from a first century tomb that was found in a Roman fort in Southfields, England. It says this. Here lies Regina. She will live again. Return to the light again. For she can hope that she will rise to the life promised as a real assurance. Listen, why? To the worthy and the pious in that she has deserved to possess an abode in the hallowed land. This your piety has assured you. 
this your chaste life, this your love for the people, this your observance of the law, this your devotion to your wedlock, the glory of which was dear to you. For all your deeds, your hope of the future is assured. The saddest epitaph I've ever read. I want my tombstone to just say, found in Christ. Found in Christ. You want your tombstone to say, found in Christ. All the other forms of identity that we are trying to build for ourselves, they are wasting away and perishing and worthless in the sight of our holy God. If you want to be made right with him, if you want to be justified, declared righteous, if you want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, if you want to be called his adopted son, you must be found in Christ. It is the only enduring identity available to you. It is the only place that you will find the joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and security that you are ever looking for. And you do not add it to yourself by your works. You must place your faith in Christ alone. So that's what we're going to pray for now. I believe that there are some in this room who have only known a version of Christianity that looked like law-keeping. They are continuing to believe that what Jesus did is gave them a do-over, gave them a clean slate, and then gave them some power. They don't totally negate the presence of Christ today, but they believe that what he did is he gave them a fresh start and an oomph of help to do better next time so that this time you'll have an offering sufficient in your flesh to make yourself right with God. And that is not the gospel. Jesus Christ cleaned your slate. He cleaned the record of your debts. And then he imputed to you the perfect record of his life, death, and resurrection. You are made clean by Christ and Christ alone. You don't have to do anything. So why do anything? Because he's that good. Because he's changed you. And so today might be your day of repentance, of true repentance from your self-righteousness. Or maybe this is the first that you've heard anything like this. And today can be the day that you renounce all your other forms of righteousness. Everything you've ever tried to do to make yourself worth something and you can acknowledge with Peter and with Paul and with me and with every other Christian that there are no worthy people going to heaven. There is one worthy one, and because you're found in him, that's what makes you eligible. That's what makes you a child of God. So can you con confess that to him and thank him for that if that